Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We are continuing our walk through uh, First and Second Samuel. And today we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 2, so if you want to follow along, I encourage you to uh, open up your Bible or use one of the Bibles in the pews. Uh, We'll be reading verses 1 through 17. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed. May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. Now may the Lord show you steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahaniam, and he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. And then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve for the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword into his opponent's side, so that they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Helkath Hazorum, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that you give us your word, and you give it to us in many forms, 
in narratives, in letters, in poetry. And Lord, we know that all of it comes from your hand. And not all of it is equally easy to understand in terms of what it says and how it applied in its original context and what it means for us in our context and how it applies to us. And so we need your help to understand your word and to revel in it and to let it penetrate our hearts and minds and and do the work of redemption in our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us tonight through the preaching of your word. You would open it up to our hearts and to our minds, and you would help us to see how you work among your people. We pray this for your glory and for the greater enjoyment and equipping of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. So in chapter 2 here, we, we turn a bit of a corner because David, who's been on the run from Saul for a long time, who was anointed as the future king of Israel all the way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16, finally is about to begin his kingdom officially to establish his kingdom. And as his kingdom is born, we see a whole lot of birth pangs, a lot of difficulty, volatility, insecurity. And as we see, a civil war begins to break out between Judah and Israel. There are two questions that I want to guide our time. The first is, how did David's kingdom begin? And what does that teach us? And rather than deal with these two questions separately, I'm just going to ask them as we walk our way through the text. And I'm outlining the text by, by uh, noting that David's kingdom begins with grief and loss. It's secured through prayer. That's second. Third, it's founded upon wisdom. And fourth, it, it grows despite resistance. So let's just walk through this and take a look at it. David's kingdom begins with grief and loss. Dr. Light talked about this. As you read through chapter 1, it is David's lament. And 2 Samuel begins right where 1 Samuel left off with Israel's defeat on Mount Gilboa, with the death of Saul and Jonathan that leaves the throne of Israel empty. And in chapter 1, as soon as this Amalekite messenger tells David the death of Saul and Jonathan, David laments. It's the first thing he does. And his lamentation is thoughtful and reflective, for it, re, it reflects sincere grief. David imagines, as he's lamenting, how the Philistines will mock Israel as a result of this great victory over Saul and Jonathan. And he's galled by how Israel's shame will be aggravated by Saul's decapitated body that is hanging from the walls of Bethshan. And to process this grief, he writes out this poem just declaring his pain in verse 19 he says your glory O Israel speaking of Jonathan and Saul these great leaders your glory O Israel is slain on your high places how the mighty have fallen tell it not in Gath publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult see what is David doing here he knows his commands to to censor the Philistine media is futile. But I think his poem reflects something very real and it's very appropriate to voice, and that is it reflects the shame that attends grief. Now, while the Philistine mockery of Israel really needles David, 
The loss of Jonathan is what truly grieves him. Jonathan was his best and most faithful friend. The type of friend who was willing to give up everything for uh, for David. I mean, Jonathan literally had a friendship with David that cost Jonathan everything. It cost Jonathan alienation from his dad, the loss of the throne. And despite all that Jonathan had to lose, he remained loyal to David. And Jonathan's attitude is summarized in chapter 23 of 1 Samuel, where he says to David, David, you will be king over Israel, for God has anointed you, and I will be second. One theologian said it this way, that phrase, I will be second, just captured Jonathan's whole approach to his relationship to the kingdom, to his understanding of God's sovereignty, to his relationship and friendship with David. And so David knows he has lost a friend that was the most excellent friend you could ever have. For he was not only faithful to David, he was faithful to Saul, his own father. And he would fight by Saul's side, even if it meant suffering collateral damage of his father's folly, which he did, and he died. So David's kingdom started with grief and loss, even as David's, you know, even as Saul's death opened up doors of relief and opportunity for David. So what does this, you know, teach us about God and his ways? God has been promising to David for a long time that he would abide with him, that he would be the future king, and that he will deliver this kingdom into David's hands. And God faithfully delivered on his promise, but it didn't come without a whole lot of grief and loss. See, God is faithful. But because of the faithlessness of humanity, of men like Saul and sometimes other sinners, God's promises will only be realized in our life through a lot of suffering and pain. Saul could have abdicated the throne. He could have embraced David as king. Had he done that, he would have saved a lot of trouble, a lot of suffering and pain. He would have saved his own son's life. But instead... God had to bring about his promise through allowing the Philistines to take Saul and Jonathan out in battle. And while it opened up a way for David to claim the throne, the fact is it was a bloody mess. Why? Because faithlessness and sin always turns things into a bloody mess. And we see that here. You must remember that God will always deliver his promises. But not always in easy and happy ways. God is faithful, yes. But the fallenness and sinfulness and stubbornness of humanity means that God's promises are often fulfilled through a whole lot of pain and suffering and grief and loss. And it's not just true here. It's pictured most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. Our redemption was won through much grief, pain, and loss because of our own stubbornness. And sinfulness. So David's kingdom would officially begin in the darkness of grief and loss, but also in the light of God's, guide, uh, of God's guidance. Look at the verse 1. David's kingdom is secured through prayer. As David is grieving the loss of Saul and Jonathan, he inquires of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. And David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. See, David, David's grief doesn't turn him away from the Lord. 
It doesn't make him bitter or resentful, but it turns him toward the Lord. It humbles David under the sovereign hand of God. And David does not make a move without seeking divine justice. Yes, David knew he had already been anointed the future king of Israel, a fact that many seem to have known. But David did not know exactly how God would bring this promise to pass, what method and timing. That was all still a mystery. Israel was still vulnerable and volatile. They were in a volatile state after the death of Saul and Jonathan. And we also must remember, where is David at this moment? He's in the land of the Philistines. He's in the city of Ziklag. Now, certainly Saul had driven him there, but at least Ashish, who was the king of the Philistines, believed that by David living in the land of Philistia, he had already made himself a stench to the other Israelites. And so in this state of very volatile affairs, David is humbled. And he knows that he cannot rescue himself. And this kept David on his knees in prayer. And so when he prays and calls out, he waits for God to answer. And God answers. He says, go up to Judah. And after further inquiry, he he narrows it down specifically to Hebron, which was probably the, the most important town in the tribal allotment of Judah. This very town held just a lot of covenant memories. Hebron testified to the covenant that God had made with his people, for it was there that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, as well as their wives, were buried. And God's answer to David, therefore, would have been a reminder to him of of his covenant faithfulness, that he is a God of faithfulness to his people, and that he was still working even in this very messy, difficult situation. So in the midst of grief and loss, David turned to God, not away, In this most volatile situation, David sought divine guidance and he received it. See, even when he may have felt the pressure to act quickly and decisively, David knew enough that he needed to slow down, turn to the Lord in prayer, and wait upon his guidance. And the Lord answered. And it just so happens the way he answered was one of the most encouraging ways. Go to Hebron, and as you're there, I'm just going to remind you of my covenant faithfulness. So the Lord opens, opens the door through prayer. And what do we learn about God and his ways? As we draw near to God, God draws near to us. He actually listens to our prayers, and he responds. Now, admittedly, in our modern culture, we probably live in a culture where it's the hardest to pray. I mean, it's so easily, we, we are so easily distracted. Our phone is constantly ringing. We have emails that constantly need our attention. We are busier than we've ever been. We live in a culture also that says it's pointless to pray. That if you want things to change, you just need to get busy and get about activism and get involved and plan and be smart and be wise. But, but to believe that is to fall prey to the oldest lie of humanity. To believe that we are big and God is small. That we can accomplish great things and God is impotent. But the truth is God is powerful. And he is faithful. He knows the end from the beginning and he is working actively, even if in hidden ways. And he listens to the prayers of his people and he guides us along all of our ways. And so we can turn to him in prayer. So brothers and sisters, what what is grieving your heart this evening? 
Chances are each of us is carrying a bit of grief and loss. Are you taking your grief and loss to God, or are you trying to handle it alone? Are you trying to muscle through? What difficulties and trials are you facing? Are you taking it to the Lord in prayer? See, as we take our concerns to God in prayer, and we we learn to rest in his promises, in his goodness, in his faithfulness, things begin to get a little less muddy because we gain perspective of the way the world really is, that God is in control, and he is good, and he is at work, and he restores our souls, and we begin to regain an emotional calm so that we don't become reactive. What blessings are you enjoying? Are you slowing down enough even to take stock of your blessings? It's so easy to be inundated with blessing after blessing after blessing, and we almost become numb to it because we're so worried of what could be lost or what could be missed out that we're living in the midst of tremendous blessing with great anxiety. And only if we would stop and pray and thank God for the tremendous ways, the daily ways, big and small, that he blesses us, he might melt our anxiety and replace it with inner peace. David turned to the Lord in his complex, uncertain situation in prayer. And God answered and secured his safety and secured his kingdom. Now David follows the Lord's lead and takes his family along with 600 men who are with him and their families. They go to Hebron. And he's welcomed by the tribe of Judah who anointed him king. There are 11 other tribes, as you may know, who do not yet recognize David as king. And, um, and in this, we see that while God clearly answers prayer, let's be honest, sometimes his answers are smaller than we want. Sometimes his answers are less significant than we had hoped. But we must never despise the day of small answers to prayer. For small beginnings, just like small infants, are packed with potential. See, had David been a more arrogant man, he may have complained to God that the other tribes weren't falling into line and weren't following suit with Judah. He may have impatiently forced the issue and rallied the troops of Judah to threaten any in Israel who was considering the possibility of not aligning with his kingship. And as we're reminded of history, those who seek power, when they see a leadership vacuum... They do not delay. They move quickly and aggressively. But David doesn't need to do that. He acts with patience because he trusts in the Lord. He refuses to complain about how inefficient the gears of change move. He sees the small things as the beginning of God's work and the fulfillment of his promise. So David's kingdom begins in grief and loss, but it's secured by prayer. Third, it's founded upon patience And wisdom. When the men of Jabesh Gilead told David that, uh, I'm sorry, when the men of Judah told David that the men of Jabesh Gilead had buried Saul, David takes time to go out of his way to thank them and to bless them in verse 6. And in verse 7, David then invites them to show the same courage they showed by going real close to the walls of Beth Shan 
putting their lives in danger to take down the bodies of Saul and Jonathan and to take them back to Jabesh Gilead where they could be buried with honor and respect. That took a lot of courage for these men to do. And David says that he's inviting them to be the first in the north in the Israelite kingdom to recognize him as king in verse 7. He says, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant, for Saul your lord is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. See, David's appeal to Judah, I mean to Jabesh Gilead, is is winsome and gracious. As the rightful king, David could have demanded their allegiance, but instead he chooses to win their allegiance. What can we learn about God's ways from this? The characters of this story teach us something about God and his people. And sure, we can learn from David himself, like he is wise, he's he, he knows that he needs to lead by example. If he wants them to follow and, and sacrifice for him, he needs to be willing to sacrifice for them. And so we can look at David as an example of a wise, sacrificial, loving leader, but there's more. For when we look at David, we see the foreshadow of another king, the son of David. And when we look at the men of Jabesh-Gilead, we discern a foreshadowing of another people, the people of this great king, this son of David. See, David reminds us of his descendant, Jesus Christ, the rightful king of kings, who is lowly and humble of heart, who could demand, right now and here, bend the knee or perish, but who says to his people, come and see, examine, take a look. And then he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. See, the fact is, Jesus, like David, has the right to command our allegiance because he's the rightful king, and we must submit. We will bend the knee, but Jesus, because he is patient and wise and loving and good, he woos us and wins us. He would rather us willingly surrender because he's a loving, humble, and good king a king who's willing to lay down his life to rescue his people and protect them from forces that seek to destroy them, even the forces of sin raging in their own heart. And so when we look at David, we see the foreshadowing of another king. However, when we look at the men of Jabesh-Gilead, we foresee the foreshadowing of another people. Like Jabesh-Gilead, Jesus' people live between two kingdoms. Because... If you look on a map, the men of Jabesh-Gilead were living between where David reigned, and I'll talk about this soon, where the Israelite puppet king reigned. One of those kingdoms is false and passing away. The other is going to endure. And we, like the men of Jabesh-Gilead, live between two kingdoms, one that will pass away and one that will endure. And the one that will endure seems small and insignificant. It may seem weak at times, but don't despise small beginnings. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It will grow. This king will reign eternal. His kingdom will endure, and the gates of hell shall not stand. So living in that space between the passing kingdom of this world and the true kingdom of heaven, will you have the courage to be the first to declare your loyalty to the true king? to be the first from the north, to be the first from the unfriendly land. Like the people of Jabesh-Gilead, we face that decision almost daily. Will we act with courage and be the first to declare our loyalty no matter the cost? 
Those of this worldly kingdom will pressure us in many ways to align with them, to align with their definition of truth, to agree with their understanding of right and wrong, to support their ever-evolving concepts of justice. But as with the men of Jabesh-Gilead, the people of Jesus must stand with him and his kingdom and not give in to this pressure, whether it's political or personal. Now, it would have been tempting for the men of Jabesh-Gilead to think that they could please both sides, to sort of ride the fence, to believe that those who fought against David, that once and future king, would, would uh, somehow compromise with his kingdom, and we can all just get along on these central things. But that would be foolish indeed. It would be a fool's errand, or more precisely, a, a coward's fantasy. For as we will see, every false kingdom that sets itself up against the Lord's anointed, whether that Lord's anointed was King David or our very own Jesus Christ, every false kingdom that sets itself up against the Lord's anointed tends to be stubbornly resistant. They don't like to surrender very easily. They cling to continued domination. And so this brings us to our last point. David's kingdom grows through grows despite resistance. And we see there's resistance from beginning to end, resistance that runs the gamut. It starts out passive, but it turns quite active. It's resistance that comes in all shapes and sizes. Picking up at verse 8, Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Man Mahanam. Mahanam. We live in Mannheim Township, so it's just, it's a tongue twister, right? Mahanam. And he made him king over Gilead, right? And so what we see here is, is not just the false king ruling and resisting a true king. What we have is an opportunistic general resisting the true king by setting up a puppet king. And in verse 8, what I just read, the commander of Saul's army, Abner, is the one calling all the shots. Did you see it? He took Ishbosheth, son of Saul. He brought him, right? He made him king. He's the one in charge. He's the one calling the shots. Ishbosheth may sit on the throne, but Abner placed him there. Abner's the one pulling all the strings. Because Ishbosheth may share the family name, but he does not share the strength of the family of Saul and Jonathan. And what we see here is mere resistance of Abner would never be sufficient. Abner sets up Saul's son as king only to buy time with the 11 tribes. It's a political maneuver meant to undermine David's claim to the throne. And while Abner initially prevents the other 11 tribes of Israel from aligning with David, he only does so by creating more instability and chaos He hopes to manipulate the other tribal leaders to secure his hold over the army so that at a more opportune time, he may attack and defeat David and remove the threat of David from his aspirations for power and position. And in verse 12, we see Abner's resistance transition from passive or passive-aggressive to directly aggressive. For in verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. And if you look at a map, 
we see that in order for that to happen, Abner is the one who's making the first move. He's the aggressor. He's moving to attack David and David's land first. Now, David must have gotten word, for upon hearing it, he responds by sending a delegation. And in verse 13, we see that Joab, the son of Zariah, the servants of David, went out and they met at a pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now, by sitting down at this pool of Gibeon, it would seem that David is attempting to avoid an all-out civil war. Who knows, David may be thinking, I don't know what Abner wants to do. Maybe he's here to negotiate a truce. Better yet, maybe he's come to his senses, wants to negotiate terms of surrender. Fat chance, but we don't know yet. Verse 14 we discover Abner's desires. Abner said to Job, let the young men rise up and compete before us. And Job said, okay, let them rise. And so they rose, and we had this proxy war. It would appear that this skirmish was to serve as a proxy. Twelve men from Benjamin seeking to represent the twelve tribes of Israel fought against twelve men of Judah, also representing the nation. And the outcome of the proxy was nothing but death. Costly death on both sides, for each man, in verse 16, thrusts his sword into his opponent's side and they fall down together. So obviously, this foreshow proxy war ultimately proved undecisive. And so it seems that a real war replaced the proxy war. And in verse 17, we see that the battle turned fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. See, the resistance to David's kingdom runs the gamut. It starts out passive. It's a passive resistance. But then it turns more active, first by trying to settle matters through a political proxy war and then turning into a full-out civil war. Whether passive-aggressive or fully engaged, resistance to David as the true king ran the gamut. What does this mean? Resistance to God's chosen king can come in many forms, every shape and size, and it can run the gamut. Just because someone isn't actively shaking their fists at God doesn't mean they're not behind the scenes trying to pull the strings to get their way in rebellion to God and his kingdom. But here's the point. God's chosen king, King David or King Jesus, His kingdom grows despite any and all forms of resistance. Why? Because God has already set his king on the throne, his anointed one. And we know this is even more true as Christians, for Jesus reigns on the throne in heaven, having defeated sin and death. And he sits at the right hand of God. And so we can trust that while resistance continues, the kingdom of Jesus will grow despite any and all resistance, no matter the form it comes in, whether it's personal or political. And dear brothers and sisters, I think we need to be reminded of this hope and this truth. How does this all apply? We are naive if we expect people to roll over who are enemies of the kingdom. Expect stubborn defiance to take on one of many forms. Expect it in our culture, but expect it in the nooks and crannies of your own heart. In any place where sin reigns, where people rebel against the king, it can take any form of resistance. 
It may be vocal and honest as it was in Psalm 2 or Acts 4 or Luke 19.4 where people declare to Jesus, we do not want this man to rule over us. Or it can be just silent and passive and stubborn. Whatever the defiance, though, take hope, even if that defiance is in your own heart, that Jesus will conquer it and he will reign supreme. God is building his kingdom, and he will build it against all all odds. Like David, Jesus' kingdom begins with grief and loss. A suffering Savior who preached, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Like David, Jesus' kingdom will be secured through prayer. The hope is that even when we fail to pray, God hears Jesus' prayer. Even when we don't know what to pray, the Spirit prays on our behalf. And that gives us courage to pray. Like David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is founded in patient wisdom. He is king and master. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But right now, he's appealing to people to lay down their sin and rebellion and idols and to come to him willingly, seeing he is a much better master, one that grants freedom. And he came to lay down his life to prove that he is for us and he is not against us. And like David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom will grow despite resistance. So fear not if you see resistance in your family, in your schools, in this community, in our political system. Nothing new is happening. Nothing new is happening. It's been this way for a long time. Take heart. God's kingdom is still advancing and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you don't leave us in darkness. You are God who is acquainted with much grief and suffering. For you sent your son to come and and carry our burdens and our sorrow the one who weeps with us in order to end all weeping one day. And Lord, we thank you that you are the God who listens to the prayers of your people. Lord, forgive us for not praying. Forgive us for taking things into our own hands and not trusting you with it. When we do that, we know we, we, we're, that's a fool's errand. We start to become reactive and we go down a dark path. Lord, remind us that you're a God who hears prayer. And even when we don't know what to pray, remind us that you are praying on our behalf, that the Spirit prays and intercedes for us, and let the hope of that encourage us to pray, knowing that you hear us as a Father who loves to hear the prayers of your children. And like David's kingdom, we know that Jesus' kingdom is founded upon patient wisdom. And Lord, that gives us great courage if we have children or family members who we love who are continually resisting your reign. We pray that you would be patient, but you would do whatever is necessary to break their hearts, to melt their hearts with your grace, and to help them bend their knee willingly, gratefully to your kingship. And Lord, we pray that you would help us not to fear, for like David's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom will grow despite resistance whatever way it comes. 
Help us to remember that this resistance is nothing new. It's been this way a long time, so help us to take heart and move forward with great confidence that you shall reign forever and ever. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.